All right, guys, welcome back or welcome to the Defining Endurance podcast. I'm your host and my co-host here, Lexi Miller, had a chance to drop in with, I guess, one of our new favorites uh, on the team, Miss Katie Carbiner, or I should say, Dr. Katie Carbiner. Uh, she's a doctor of physical therapy that's recently joined the Lifelong Endurance team. Um, she's done an episode with us in the past, but this is one that I think you guys are going to really enjoy. Lexi, what are we talking about today? Yeah, so this episode is all about running form uh, and whether or not there is a perfect kind of running form. You know, we discuss the mechanics of stride, what in an ideal world it should look like, and the common kind of, you know, deviations that show up for people and when to adjust it versus when to just, you know, know that you have a little bit of a funky, funky stride. Uh, we do talk a lot about how watching elite runners, you don't see anyone you know, quote unquote, running perfectly, especially at the end of a race, you know, you'll see those amazing uh, athletes who are about to go off to the Olympics, and they are all kinds of funky. Um, but Andrew, I know you do a lot of work on form. What's your thought on that? Yeah, you have to own your funky, like, you know, in in working with athletes on running form, I think the thing that's hard is that we want to chase this perfect model all the time of like, you know, being symmetrical and there's this balance, right. To be found when it comes to your running form and your gait and your mechanics, there's imbalances, there's how you're built. Um, and those are all things that, that we really have to take into consideration because if we're only looking at this from a, you know, a single point of, okay, I have to bring my, my leg up to 105 degrees and, you know, my cadence has to be this perfect 180 or it's bad. It's like, I view running form and mechanics. And I think in a similar way to Katie is it's on a fluid spectrum. It's, there is, there is a good spectrum. There is an ideal range that we want to work with. Um, and that's where, when we fall outside that range, you and I have both had a chance to work with. Uh, Katie, as our physical therapist, uh, that's when we need to seek out, you know, one of two people in my mind. There's a strength coach. They're very helpful, like Coach Hillary, Coach Laura, Coach Katie. Like those are people you go to when you need to build strength, and that's going to help show up and give you better mechanics. It's a strength side. Then there's also the mechanical side of things, like dysfunction. Like for me, my like three toes, uh, outside three toes on my right foot. They don't like to come to the party all the time, right? They're kind of the wallflowers. They straggle behind. And that is a dysfunction that leads to other problems in my lower legs. And so to me, running form is on a spectrum. Where do you fall? Yeah, no, I definitely, especially when people start moving to like trails, I think it's really difficult to even, you know, change form because it's always going to be a different varied terrain. Um, however, I think there's a lot of places you can lose efficiency or end up with injury. And so I think those are times to adjust, but also sometimes adjustment without taking the time, just like you said, to strengthen can lead to more injuries because your body has been running this particular way and moving this particular way for X amount of years, you aren't going to change it overnight. So I think yeah. if changing your stride, changing your form is something that you're truly interested in, like get yourself either set up with it trainer or, you know, find out what you need to strengthen in order to make those adjustments. Totally. And I think one of the things that's really powerful, you know, we've, we've kind of moved into a new place of like, you know, virtual. And I know coach Katie, um, I don't know if she talks about it in this episode, but one of the things that she actually does is like a virtual consult. So whether that's injury assessment or actual gait analysis, like using your phone and having somebody film you, and being able to do that or going in person and getting a gait analysis, like having more data points is always better than guessing and assuming, right? We're always going to assume that we're doing something wrong, right? We're always going to say, oh, I think I can improve. I could improve. But when you go and change something, you should have data that supports your reason to make a change. You shouldn't just change something because someone told you on a podcast that it was right. Like, and I know a, a few times in this episode, we're probably going to talk about, you know, ideal scenarios. Well, the reality is, is that reference, get a reference point to say, oh, I'm actually better at this than I thought, or wow, I really have to work on my arm mechanics. 
and you you're able to see that and be able to get feedback from somebody. So whether that's working with somebody like myself or coach Katie, um, Carbina in this episode, this is, you know, hands down, like these are good investments to make. I consider, I consider things like this, um, to kind of fall in like nutrition consulting, like it's expensive, but the value of getting a nutrition consult or a form consult or any of this, like coaching in general is like, you get a recipe, you get a recipe that then you can follow and replicate over and over and over again, once you've been able to get results. And so that to me is super powerful. Yeah. So I think, you know, definitely listen to this. If you feel like any of it's ringing true to you, you're like, oh, I do have aches and pains in this area. Uh, definitely get it checked out. But just as Andrew said, don't change things just because it doesn't look perfect. Very, very, very few runners, even at the professional elite level, have a perfect form. No kidding. Um, if you guys want, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll put up on the defining endurance, uh, Instagram after this episode, um, I'll share a video on that, uh, that kind of goes through like what a, a form analysis would look like and kind of just to kind of give you guys an idea of one that I've done in the past. So, um, if you guys aren't yet following us, a couple places to find us, whether you're finding me or Lexi or our team, if this is your first time listening to us, uh, at defining endurance, all one word on Instagram, as well as lifelong endurance. Uh, and I believe is it lifelong underscore endurance or is it all one word? word now, Lexi. All one word. Ooh, we're back to all one word here, people. And then I am at Coach Simmons Runs and you are? I believe I am at Lexi Lifelong Endurance. I will put that in with the correct one that I have when I remember yeah. it. <laughs> So we, we are, <laughs> we are there. I know these intros might feel a little clunky, but we want to make sure that we're prefacing uh, and providing as much value as we can this podcast to you guys. So appreciate you guys uh, working through it. We can jump into the episode. Let's do it. Welcome back or welcome to Defining Endurance. I am today's host, Lexi Miller, joined again by the physical therapist and now coach for both peak performance and lifelong endurance, Katie Carbiner. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lexi. As always, I'm happy to be here. I am super excited today. We're going to talk about form. Uh, so as we were just talking before we started recording, Form is kind of a tough one. Like I, I ask everyone just to stay through this episode because I know it can kind of sound dry, but I think it's that one thing in running that we all have to work on. There's there's no one born with absolutely everything perfect when it comes to running form. So again, I know it's kind of dry. I know we're going to kind of get into some nitty gritty, but I just ask everyone to stay with us and you know send us questions afterward. So Katie, before we get into to talking about form, Tell us a little bit more about yourself, what you do, and the kind of people you work with, uh, both as a physical therapist and a coach. Yeah. So, again, I'm Dr. Katie Carbiner. I'm a physical therapist in uh, downtown Golden, Colorado, currently at Serona Physical Therapy. Um, I also work in the running industry at Runner's Roost Fitting Shoes um, and helping coordinate the race team. And then I just joined the whole family here with Lifelong Endurance, and I'll be starting adult coaching soon, uh, mostly with road running athletes. And then I'm also a coach for Peak Performance, which is our youth side of the program. We're about to start our summer season, so we're super excited. I work with a wide variety of conditions from elderly to youth athletes now um, are definitely uh, growing in terms of my caseload. Um, and my favorite athletes to treat are my fellow runners. Great, Katie. Well, I'm super excited to talk to you about form because I think that it is just such a difficult topic. I know as a coach, uh, probably about half the athletes that come to me, one of the things I want to work on is improving their form. You know, and that's where I kind of want to like, you know, we're going to have a little bit of a conversation here. Is there such a thing as perfect form? Yeah, and I think that's exactly the question we always ask. And yes and no, right? I think there there's an ideal. There's something we can all strive for. But the hard thing is striving for that form isn't necessarily capable for every body type. Um, and the, yeah, there's we can be more efficient. I think we can be healthy. And if we're efficient and we're healthy 
then that's perfect form for that athlete. And it's figuring out though what that should look like. So I think taking that ideal that we all have in our brain, uh, like I feel like a lot of us have seen that meme of the little girl who's like running perfectly and then you look like you're about to die is what we actually look like. And it's how can we bring those a little bit closer together and finding that reality of what's again, what's most efficient for which body type and also where you are within your experience with running. Um, as we run more, I've known, I've watched my, my form, my gait, everything change throughout. So there's, there's those other variables to think about. Oh, for sure. So like one of my first questions when an athlete's like, this is something I want to work on is asking why, if it's because there's injuries coming up. Absolutely. If it's because they just like, they're like, I'd like to be faster. I think it will help. I think it gets into that, like, it could almost cause more damage than be helpful. But I also am not a physical therapist. So I'd like to hear your opinion on that, Katie. Yeah, I think what I tell athletes, or even except more so patients when they come in, and they're like, you know, I think I need a I need you to look at my gait. I think something's wrong. And there's one of those things, it depends on a, are they injured? Are they coming more for like a tune up? Is it? What is the injury? Um, then seeing if there is a connection between that injury and the running form. Sometimes it's your shoe you or you ran too many miles and you didn't rest well. And that's what led to your injury. So I think it's finding that correlation. Um, and then there's always that old saying, if it isn't broke, don't try to fix it. I think that my favorite thing to do is pull up pictures or videos of the lead pack in a marathon. And you look at them from mile one, and then you look at them like near the end of the race. You're going to see anything and everything. You're going to see form break down. You're going to see heel strikers. You're going to see people with terrible form. And sometimes with people with terrible form, again, varying from that ideal, they're still competing. So even though maybe they can't hold that ideal where we want that nice gazelle-like stride, are they still being the most efficient and strong that they can and having the strength to accommodate whatever form they naturally have? There are those instances where I do make those changes. Um, and typically, you know, if it's good for you, if it's not super complicated, it doesn't have to be hard. And when we make it hard, where you're thinking of 50 different things like, all right, I need my left elbow, right, second toe hitting here, flexing here, you go to those extremes, you're not running. All you're doing is thinking. And that defeats the purpose of why most of us are here. We run because we love it and we enjoy it. And I think it's it's preserving that piece of the puzzle and not overthinking your gait while you're running. No, I think that overthinking, like you can almost see when an athlete's doing that, when they're like trying so hard to be so conscious of it, um, it, it does get very awkward. And that's where I feel like we can almost run the risk of like over fatiguing or over injuring if you're so focused on trying to get that cadence up. But that's you haven't trained your body well enough to do that. Uh, the other thing I think people come to a lot and you sell running shoes. I sold running shoes like, but that doesn't mean that every person selling shoes knows what perfect form is. And so someone will come and they're like, well, I went to buy a pair of shoes and they said that I overpronate and I heel strike, but it could be that, you know, somebody wasn't used to running on a treadmill. It could be that, you know, they were running around the store or just that person selling shoes may not have the best grasp of what good form is. Um, so when it comes to something like that, if someone's told, you know, that they, they're doing these things, um, what's your first step in kind of addressing that, that concern? I think it's asking those questions. Do you think you need to change that? Do you have an injury? Like, what is the thought process between the why? Why do you think that person said that? Or do you even find value in that? Is it just because it doesn't look good? Or is it because it doesn't feel good? Is it slowing you down or does it just, is it just your funky little thing? I know we were talking earlier today um, with a friend where we were talking about running for, I showed a picture of, I always have my dyno hand where my wrist flexes. It's not a conscious thing. I've tried to fix it, but is it really affecting my form that I need to focus on my wrist being sturdy? No, I can be a T-Rex and it's okay as long as if my arms swing, we can go dive deeper into that. But it's those little things we kind of can let things be to an extent if there is no why that's affecting your performance or your health and things like that. 
Great. To start off with, let's talk about the uh, four stages of running gait. Yeah, so we have initial contact, kind of that breaking absorption phase, mid-stance, and then propulsion. Yeah, so what, what does that mean? Let's talk about initial contact. What is that? Initial contact is the moment we're making that contact with a single leg at the foot, um, and that's where we'd kind of talk about are you heel striking or that forefoot strike? So it's that position your foot is hitting the ground. Okay. Now breaking. I, I don't want to stop while I'm running. Why am I, why am I breaking? <laughs> you're breaking because you're slowing down. So we make that initial contact and that's where really you're absorbing that force. So initial contact, we're looking at more how you're hitting than the absorptions where we start to usually see changes such as that supination to pronation, the loading forces through the knee, and then the hip. And we're looking at different angles and what occurs there. So that's when you're first getting that impact of the ground up through the leg. Okay. So we, we hit the ground. We're moving. We, you know, our foot's making that movement. What's mid stance? Mid stance is where we start to transition our body weight from we're making that contact, our torso, our center of mass starts to move over our body and we're hitting that mid stance moving through. We're not quite getting all the way through. We're transitioning to the other leg. Um, and we're going to look here in terms of what is our upper bodies doing? How is our core engaged? Typically, we'll see a lot of changes through there with in terms of looking at mid stance. And then we move towards propulsion. So what what does that look like? Yeah, that's how we're generating that force off of the ground. So we made that contact, we loaded everything, we're moving forward, and then we're pushing off. We're generating that force and having that other leg then swing through and create that same cycle again. And then probably on the complete inverse, and what we'll get into in a minute, is then you might also get people who have injuries from just running incorrectly for long periods of time. And like you mentioned before, like watching a marathon, you'll see someone running one way at mile one, and then it'll look totally different at mile 18 when we start to fatigue. Um, so, you know, as we get into this and we talk about each section and give some exercises on how to do them, I think what's also important, we'll kind of discuss like why this is an issue. Um, you know, what are we fatiguing? What could we possibly be injuring in this process? So let's dive into the mechanics of running form. Do you want to start off telling us kind of the basics and, and what we'll be discussing? Sure. I know some of the topics we're thinking of covering are the phases of gait. So going through from like initial contact to toe off and just general posture, as well as factors such as cadence, um, arm swing. I think those would be the, the main ones. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always interested in foot strike and foot flexion. I think that was one of the funny things when I worked at a running shoe store, how many people came in they're like, I think there's something wrong with me. I lift my toes up when I run. I'm like, no, that's, that's totally normal, but it's just something that we've, we don't discuss as runners. Uh, but yeah, let's jump in and talk a little bit to start about cadence. What is cadence? Yeah, cadence is the number of steps per minute. And so that can correlate sometimes to speed or really efficiency. So I feel like when we can get a higher cadence, in theory, we're also improving efficiency. You're being able to do more steps per minute and maintaining that form um, to be able to run faster. And you're going to see that cadence vary based on terrain, fatigue, um, and effort in time with pace. One of the things I think is so interesting about cadence is if we go back to like the Bill Bowerman days when Nike was first getting off the ground, there was this whole theory that, you know, we wanted these big, long strides and almost you wanted less cadence because you wanted to be taking the biggest stride possible. Like if you look at especially track runners from the 1960s, 1970s, big, long strides landing on our heels. If you read the book Born to Run, there's a whole theory of how that's ruined running. I'm not going to get into that because I, you know, not necessarily that I agree, but that was the theory. And then as time has evolved, we want kind of a shorter stride where we're landing a little bit more midfoot and getting a little bit more of a fluid motion. So the shorter step kind of helps us like, just like you said, be more efficient. When should someone work on their cadence? What are some cues that it's time, time to adjust? I think 
a lot of times new runners, people who are just getting into truly training for a race or starting to switch from a goal of finishing a race to maybe a goal of a time goal. The best way to improve your speed is through improving your cadence and just improving your efficiency to to then again get past that. I just want to finish because when you just want to finish, you want to feel good. You want to feel strong. But the efficiency isn't as important. Once you change those goals and you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, that's where cadence, I think, has a bigger uh, piece to the puzzle. And so I think that's when we want to shorten that stride and learning how to change cadence throughout a run. So when you're doing speed work, um, that's easy. The first adjustment people make when they're trying to improve speed and change their coaching, not coaching style, but um, change their workouts is that we need to decrease that cadence. No, sorry, decrease the cadence increase the cadence so we have more steps per minute, which is therefore going to shorten your stride. Where that comes from is kind of what Lexi was hinting towards with where is that foot then striking? If we overstride, it takes more muscle energy than to bring the other leg forward. It takes less muscle energy over a shorter distance and it uses different muscles. Typically with a shorter stride, we're going to be able to utilize our glutes more effectively versus a longer stride. You end up having to use hamstring and a few other mechanics change within the pelvis to then generate that force to get that other, the second leg to come through. Um, So again, it's improving that efficiency, which then we need to be able to hold at faster pace. Absolutely. So when, you know, there's a few different ways that we can talk about cadence. Of course, if you're running on a trail, if you're running hills, if you're running downhill, it's all going to be funky. But say you're running something totally flat. Typically, we say that the ideal cadence, if you're counting one foot uh, at a time, it would be 80 to 90 beats per minute. Uh, If you're doing both feet, it would be 160 to, to 180. Of course, some people are a little bit over, some people are a little bit under. I usually give people about a five to 10 beat grace before I say anything like, Hey, something's kind of going on here. Um, And then, you know, something I look for when an athlete is running a race, especially something like a road marathon is looking at how their cadence might be changing during the race. Not necessarily that their pace is changing, but it just could be that something kind of funky is going on. Just like you said, that efficiency is going down uh, and they might have a little bit of a pain in their hip or their ITB might be tightening. And so that cadence is going to get maybe even faster, but it's going to show that there's something kind of funky where they're not getting their full stride. What are your thoughts on, on looking at cadence, you know, cause it shows up on Strava on training peaks really anytime you're wearing a GPS watch. I, I think there's value. And I think the biggest thing is like you're mentioning is looking at the change. So you're going to have your baseline depending on where you are with your training getting to know what is my cadence on an easy run? What is my cadence on a speed workout? What is my cadence at my goal race pace? And then when you start to see that pace vary from that normal, is it, should it be or should it not be? Again, knowing where your goals might be, then we can start to kind of say, hey, why did that happen? Like if I look at like a 400 meter workout, typically you're going to see a higher cadence for that first like what, 10 seconds or so. And then ideally we want to see it normalize and, and maintain. If we see it go really high up to like 200, drop down to 180, and then it goes down to 160, that tells us something about your pacing. You were at a cadence or a pace that you couldn't maintain proper form. So it's, it's looking at that, how does that change and what are the goals of the workout? So if we're looking for a kick at the end of the race, I do want to see the cadence increase. Um, if that's something we're trying to work on, if we're looking for consistency, that's one thing. And then like you mentioned, trails, that's a whole nother ball game. We're going to see a higher cadence typically uphill because we need shorter, choppier steps in order to not overstride and use our glutes most effectively without fatiguing. Downhill, how technical it is, that's going to change our cadence. If it's a super mellow dirt road versus a super rocky technical downhill, we're going to see that change in cadence and knowing, okay, we ignore that. We're expecting that because of that change in terrain. No, that's totally right on is yeah. Trails, definitely a funky time to look at it. You might be able to get grasp something from it, but honestly, as a coach, I never really pay too much attention to somebody's cadence unless it's, we're talking about efficiency, hiking up something. Um, 
Let's talk a little bit about foot strike. I feel like foot strike is something people always have a preconceived notion of whether they heel strike, they run on their toes. Uh, we might, we could even talk a little bit about overpronation, supination, all that in foot strike. What are your opinions? What do you work on with people? It's a hot topic for sure. I feel like there's books, there's podcasts, there's articles, blogs on all of this, especially when that border run book came out. There's a huge emphasis on on that four foot strike. And same thing like I mentioned before, my favorite thing to do is then again take a screenshot of a marathon. Go ahead and just take a picture of the feet. I'm gonna see anything and everything. And they're the most elite runners in the country to the world, depending on what race we're looking at. There is no right or wrong. I think it's the same thing. If you're going to be a heel striker and that's just your natural gait, do you have the strength and the mechanics to support that type of strike? Are you a four foot striker naturally? Do you have the strength and mechanics to maintain that? Occasionally you have to change because it could be, again, your novice runner. You just are going, or maybe someone told you to do that. So you tried to be something that you're not, and so we have to make that adjustment. So therefore, you're doing what is appropriate for your body. So it's having the package behind it, I think, to then allow for whatever, or accommodating whatever strike pattern that your body naturally wants. There are definitely cases, though, I have transitioned people from a heel strike to a forefoot strike and had a lot of success Um, But I've also seen plenty of people who come in, been told to do a more of a forefoot strike, and it's causing 50,000 things wrong. And a lot of their injuries came from trying to make that change. We really have to trust our bodies. And I think even as a healthcare provider, the best thing we can do is listen. And the more I ask questions, the more I listen, it kind of helps me figure out you know, there probably is a need for a change just based on what you're saying, how things feel. If you're telling me it feels awkward, if you're telling me these things, maybe it is awkward for a reason. Maybe it's awkward because it's new. It's it's definitely that coaching piece of it, that expertise to help you figure out if that change is helpful or not, but it's not necessary. There's plenty of people who heal strike and be efficient. Again, though, then we might adjust cadence. So you're not reaching out as far and hitting the heel with a higher velocity force, whatever the case is. But I think either can be accommodated. And then you talked about my favorite topic of pronation. I always love to tell people, everyone's like, oh, I pronate. I'm like, good. We all pronate. <laughs> pronation is your best friend. It's when we get excessive overpronation or even the navicular drop. So looking at the effect of the pronation, everyone pronates though. So you might be an overpronator, but that's necess- not necessarily a bad thing. But something to, again, proceed with caution. Let's look a little bit closer into it. But if you're pronating, then good. We have to pronate then to be able to perform knee extension and hip extension. If we're not pronating, we can't get to those later stages up the chain um, within our lower extremity. So it's very important that we do let people pronate and even slightly overpronate. That's okay. It's within a normal range is what we're looking for. Typical strike pattern walking, which would follow through with most people running the in terms of the impact might change again, heel to forefoot striking. We supinate which is starting at like kind of the edge of the heel. And then we start to pronate moving towards neutral and perfect world. We follow through big toe and all of our toes and come right through the middle of our foot. But it requires that pronation, that supinated position, moving to pronation, the actual act of pronation, and then following through. It's when we go past that neutral position, we need to determine if that's because of the foot, if that's because of the hip, is this even relevant? Um, it's not necessarily, again, a red flag where I need to freak out and put a medial posting in your shoe and correct everything. It's just something to look closer into. No, I think that's always the important thing to remember. Just like you said, everyone pronates. It's good. Um, what about supination? supination again we have to supinate in order to pronate if we're already started in a pronated position you're not going to go go anywhere you're going to be running pretty flat-footed and really awkward um again we're looking at that excessive amount of supination is it really far outside of your heel are you staying in supination if it's staying really far out typically you'll see a lot of people with more ankle type injuries more of not less of a shin splint because you're not getting that medial loading in terms of where the shin is you're going to get a lot of peroneal type pain on the outside of your ankle 
um, maybe lateral IT band pain, some changes again up the extremity into like the knee or the hip. Uh, and we want to make sure we're not again over supinating. Sometimes it's a lot of ankle instability, I would say, relates to when I see over too much supination. And again, it's we can supinate. We don't want excessive supination. We want to make sure we're making that transition into pronation and not staying just on the outside of our foot. Awesome. I think that's just good to remember. Good stuff for people to keep in mind. Um, I always tell people if they're interested in what they do is have a friend, a partner, a running buddy film them running at the end of their run. And you can kind of see where things might be when they're fatigued, if they feel like it's important to make a change. All right. Let's talk a little bit about foot flexion. What, what do you ever work with people on that? What injuries can come up with, you know, ill-fitting shoes that don't allow us to, to flex our toes as we run? Yeah. So I, I kind of combine this with uh, the other kind of title of a phase of gait of the towing off. And so we, again, we make that initial contact and then we transition forward towards our toes and then we tow off. With the towing off, there's a few things we're looking at. We're looking at the amount of motion in our foot and in our toes. Where on our toes are we using all our toes, just our big toe, just our outer toes? And then we're also looking at what's happening as it comes off of the ground. Are we seeing a heel whip where it's not, it's following through at an angle with a rotation? Are we seeing circumduction? Those are just some fancy terms for just weird things that we see as that foot leaves the ground and starts to toe off. Again, perfect world. We're seeing it come off in a very straight line. We hit on the outside of our heel. If our heel striker or the outside of the foot pronates through, stops at neutral, which means it's loading evenly throughout the entire shoe and then through our big toe. Um, shoes do play a big role in this, and I think that's our easiest way to manipulate this part of gait without actually making a psychological body awareness type change. Um, it's super fun. I think that's what we play around with in the shoe industry with fitting people or even as a PT sometimes to teach someone a gait after an injury. Um, I know I used a certain type of shoe after I had surgery on my ankle to allow me to run more effectively and probably sooner than I should have. So don't tell my PT, which was myself, but um, <laughs> it, the shoes can do a lot for us. And then sometimes I, I, how I explain people when I'm fitting shoes too is that we can kind of use shoes at different points in our running life. So I use a certain type of shoe that accommodated my injured gait to then I was able to transition back to maybe a racing flat, something a little more flexibility. Um, so that goes into looking at that stack height um, of the shoe, which is the height of the foam throughout Uh then we're looking at the, all the new technology in terms of rocker geometry. That's really going to have a, a nice effect on that foot flexion and that toe off pattern. I think we see a lot of that in the Hoka shoes, which are kind of fun to play around with. That's what they're known for is that high stack height and that rocker geometry. I believe initially I got an opportunity a few years back to hear one of the creators at a talk and Really, their intention of creating the Hoka shoe was there are a bunch of surfer bros who enjoyed running trails in Hawaii, and they love the sensation of flying. And that kind of is where their logo comes from with the wings, is they wanted something that they, as they're running downhill, that, that natural high that you can get running downhill on a trail, how can they create that light type sensation and facilitate that movement forward? Um, and that then evolved to a whole nother game. I don't think they ever predict it. Now a lot of people use it from an injury perspective. So I have patients who maybe are have a halitus rigidus or halix rigidus, or essentially their big toe. You have a bunion. You have issues in that joint. It's not moving well. Then I can accommodate that change where I might not be able to change it. Maybe they had a surgery and they're recovering. I don't have to have that toe flexion because a shoe is going to naturally do it for me. Um, so you can definitely find a lot of compensations from a shoe like a Hoka to then you can't really hide that as much in a more traditional model, maybe like your Brooks Ghost. It has your, you know, classic eight to 10 mil drop, normal kind of flexion. It's going to have movement in that forefoot, which requires a lot more strength and flexibility in that midfoot. 
if you don't have that fl- flexibility in the midfoot, we're going to find either you're going to compensate, maybe you're going to supinate more because your body doesn't have that movement to pronate. So in order to use that shoe, you're going to stay there. Um, and so that would change. So playing with shoes, essentially the summary there is can have a huge impact on what we're seeing. Um, but we can also allow you to accommodate shoes from a PT perspective of we realize that see, is this related to an injury? Do we need to work on mobility of your foot? Is there ways I can teach you to strengthen your foot to accommodate a shoe or running style? Um, I could talk for hours on this where (laughs) your feet are special. Your feet are really fun to treat. I love treating the foot because there's so many pieces of the puzzle. And like I said, throwing the shoe component, I can change a lot with a good shoe. Oh, no, for sure. I, I feel like, you know, obviously I think that running should have a low barrier of entry. Like if you're new to it, don't feel like you need to invest tons of money. But if you're going to like a good pair of shoes is really just going to be a game changer. Uh, and to like spend time getting the right pair because you take a lot of steps in your in your shoes life and something that's kind of making things worse is only going to be ex- like expedited if, if the shoe's wrong. Um, all right. So we've talked about what the initial contact looks like. You know, we've talked about what your cadence, your foot strike, the foot flexion. We've talked about breaking and absorption. We're kind of in that mid stance propulsion area. Let's talk a little bit about your body posture. How does this affect our gait? I think it has a huge effect on our gait. And I'd say typically this is the easiest thing for me to change with either a client or a patient. Um, It requires a lot more of strengthening and body awareness, but it shouldn't require too much thought. Um, We want our shoulders nice and relaxed. We want them not being held up by our upper trap. So shoulders are relaxed down and back. We're also thinking about where our core engagement is. And the pelvis position also has a huge effect. So if we're in a more lordotic posture, which means that pelvis is tilting forward, we have more of an arch in our back. That might be something I want to change versus getting more of a neutral pelvis so our legs can move more effectively underneath us and that might affect cadence. There's a lot we can do when we're looking at that upper body posture. But again, ideally, it's not completely perfectly erect, but it's very relaxed and we're having a pelvis in a position to help you generate that force, not too far forward, tilted or posteriorly tilted, tilted back. No, I think a lot of people tend to think like, oh, I should be leaning forward when I run and they kind of hinge at their hips almost and just lose all that power. Or, I mean, we've all seen people running where it looks like they're like almost stopping every single step because they're so far back and they're just losing that momentum. So we engage our core, we work on those hips. Uh, how, how do we, if somebody's standing absolutely straight up and down, how does that affect their running? Where it could easy it's less adjustable that'd be one thing because if we're too erect then we're not able to then absorb the force as effectively Um, and it's going to change in terms of where the leg is making that initial contact and the angle that it would be able to to be used Um, so we want that slight again it's a forward lean and we say like Lexi is saying a A forward lean isn't a hinge at the hip. It's getting that torso forward. But then we learn how to engage the core to accommodate this. So we've talked about our posture. Let's talk a little bit about our arms. You talked about when your arms are tight. You know, you mentioned the beginning, you get the dinosaur arm going. I noticed, especially if I've been running with the stroller a lot, then when I go to run without it, I like forget to do with my what to do with my upper body and I'm really tight. How can we work on that or how why should we? Yeah, arm swing is directly correlated to cadence as well as being able to generate more speed. Um, So a faster arm swing is going to allow you to move your legs faster. If we're not swinging arms with our legs, you're losing a lot of momentum. A lot of running is controlling momentum and generating that force and that momentum, and then we're able to continue to carry it on. So that improves our efficiency. Um, With that, an arm swing can be efficient, and it can definitely be inefficient and slow us down. So ideally, again, we want those uh, shoulders nice and relaxed, elbows down by our side. 
we're not having our shoulders rolling forward. We want both arms moving. A lot of times I'll pick up on people with only one arm swinging and that might be something I'll want to change. We have to dive into as to why is it because a leg is hurt? So are they avoiding using that leg, whether subconsciously or consciously? Um, Is it because they're holding a water bottle? So, you know, using a handheld hydration device is going to change the arm swing. We want to make sure that it's not crossing over midline. That's very inefficient because when we have our arm swing across midline, we're also going to have that hip also swing across midline. And then we're losing that efficiency in terms of our lower extremity and how that's being moved forward. Um, so ideally, we I always like to tell people, you have a piece of glass going down the middle of your body. We never want to break that piece of glass and that barrier between and trying to find where can we have that more relaxed position We don't want the shoulders forward in terms of rounding forward. So a lot of times if we have pec tightness, you're going to see those shoulders round forward and our backs hunch. That's going to make us have more of that cross body arm swing. So keeping our chest more open allows for more diaphragmatic expansion as well as then that more efficient arm swing moving through. And again, that not necessarily cadence, but I guess cadence of an arm swing and that Uh, pattern and rhythm, that's going to directly correlate to the type of speed you're running. And again, going into trails, that might look a little different. If you're, you might flare out your arms a little bit more from a stability standpoint um, to make sure you're not falling over rocks or you're slowing yourself down on a steep downhill. Then when you hit that uphill, you're going to see that more traditional effective arm swing on a trail. One of the things I found is a large majority of the time, if somebody's dealing with side stitches, almost always they have a lot of tightness in their shoulders and they're kind of hunching as they get tired or they get tight, like they're kind of already a little bit tight there. Uh, you know, it can also just come from stress during the day that we're getting this hunch. If you're at a computer all day, you're leaning over again, if you're stressed and have your shoulders up, um, of course, working on that upper body mobility is huge, but even I just tell people, I remind myself on long runs, like shake it out. Like take a moment, take a deep breath, shake out the arms and shoulders. If you feel it getting tight, do that body scan, notice kind of where that upper body is. Cause I think we get so focused on our legs. It can be really easy to get, you know, a little bit sidetracked and forget about that upper body. A hundred percent. Like, yeah, I think it, the upper body is the easiest way to almost make a change. It's less thought cause it's closest to our brain. Um, There's less variables, again, because we're not thinking of the foot, the ankle, the knee, the hip. All we have to think about is really shoulder position. If our shoulder position changes, that's directly in terms of where muscles attach to our neck, again, to the diaphragm. What you're mentioning with that more hunched position typically is because people are using more accessory muscles with breathing, even throughout their daily routine, let alone their running, which again has a huge effect on how we're getting oxygen to our muscles. So I think this for your most bang for your buck, if you're going to change something in your gait, I would really look at your upper body posture and that arm swing, because that's going to tell you a lot of where you can probably improve just to breathe better and feel better. And then that directly, because it's attached, moves the pelvis, which then moves our legs. And look at that. We didn't have to look at our foot yet. And we can have a huge effect and even change your foot strike pattern simply by um, improving your posture. Totally. I, I agree that, you know, it is one of the easiest things to fix and it, it does make a huge difference, even just how you feel in general. So we kind of already started into the propulsion section talking about arm swing, but let's dive into what our lower body is doing during propulsion. Yeah. So that's where we're looking at the timing of the calf being activated. And so that toe off position, we're looking at the timing of knee extension, which is when our knee goes from a bent to a straight position. And then also that hip is turning into extension. So we're getting that complete push off um, before we have the actual toe off during that phase of gait. And so what I found here, it's a lot about timing. Are you using your hamstrings too soon? Are you overusing your hamstrings? And this is where we start to talk about the, you know, everyone's favorite thing to talk about right now is glute activation. Are we getting that glute activation and timed at the correct part of that phase of that propulsion moving through? Um, Sometimes I see a lot of people with gastroc calf injuries because they're underutilizing their glutes and they're overutilizing their calves. Um, 
And so then we want to look at that timing, that coordination, as well as the strengths and how can we make as much as we can go up to our glute. Our glute max is our biggest muscle in our body and therefore it's our most bang for our buck and it is meant to accommodate that motion. So the most we can get there, you're going to save your quads, you're going to save your calf and then we are able to get them all in sync as a team. No, I think glute activation could be its whole own episode because it is definitely like what a lot of people are talking about, but also something that so many people have been like, what does that even mean? Like, how do I, do I, do I squeeze my cheeks together? Like, how do I activate my glutes? So we'll definitely talk about that a little bit more, uh, you know, in, in a later episode, but just if you were to give us like a brief highlight of what that means, what does that look like? Yeah. And I think it, it's a timing piece. So when is our glute active? Is it active at all? How can we get it as the primary mover, whether that's with weightlifting to running? And if we can make it your primary mover, then you're going to avoid injury um, and you're going to be more efficient. And so because, again, it goes to the size of the muscle. What is our body meant to do? Our calf muscle is not big enough to generate force for our whole body. If we're making it be your primary source of propulsion and energy, it's it's going to eventually fail. Um, it's too small. It's not meant to do that. And so that's why glute activation is important is number one, because it needs to be our primary mover. It's not a squeeze. It's not any of those types of things. It's a lot about it is, I think, in my opinion, kind of joint angle. So if I can get you in the right position to create that length tension relationship to then have that muscle contract, typically we're going to have that contract more often. And then I also like to train that timing piece. Um, I know some other people like to train it in terms of making it kind of fatigued and turned on in terms of exercises. I like to go to your old school skipping drills. Um, if you're skipping in the proper pattern, like a high skip, or if you go to, if you're familiar with track skips, like an A and a B, how are we, where is that glute active within that? And are you able to activate it within those skipping patterns? We're going to have more activation per se. And again, activation is really just more use and not necessarily a squeeze. And I think then we have to look at to how it, when it is it used and throughout how much of that is part of propulsion as well as absorption is that glute being used. And the last thing I want to talk about, and it kind of goes right back to the initial contact because of course it's a cyclical motion, um, is, you know, again, if we look at that old school style of running, people were really like springing themselves into the air. How much air should we be getting? How much should our feet be leaving the ground? You know, how high should our knees be getting? How close to our booty should our feet, our heels be getting? What does, what in the ideal world does that look like? You're exactly right. We want decreased like flight time. If <laughs> that's one way you want to look at, it. I can't think of the exact term right now. Um, but we, where that starts to look at is, you know, looking at the symmetry in terms of how long are you spending on one leg? So it'd be stance time on the leg would have a piece of this puzzle. And I mean, the, the definition of running is that at some point you don't have uh, one foot on the ground and that's what makes it different than walking. So you're going to have some of that flight time, but we become more inefficient the more we move up. So it's that vertical component. We want to decrease and turn that vertical component instead of generating force up to generating that force forward. Um, and we lose some of that in terms of being able to generate as much force forward or I guess getting tired doing that. We're going to see that length and stride pattern, which then that turns into how high is our knee going and how high is our foot going back as we're coming off and that toe off part of gait. And so we want to have some knee coming forward. I guess it depends also on your goals. So if we're doing a speed workout, that's going to look different. So a sprinter obviously looks different than a marathon or to an ultra runner. So we're looking at, are we generating force or are we generating efficiency? Once we get in those longer distances, it's much more about efficiency. The knee's not going to be coming as high. We don't want that foot kicking our butt. Really, we don't want our kick our butt 
our foot kicking our butt at any part of running. Um, But we're definitely going to see less of that height change with an ultra runner versus a sprinter. We are going to see it getting close to almost that 90 degree mark in terms of hip flexion Um, and then having that foot cycle through, but making sure that initial contact is then as close to our center of mass as we can and looking at how far away is that initial contact from our center of mass is also going to affect and be affected by the amount of hip flexion with that coming forward our knees coming high and then that butt kick or lack thereof will be affected in terms of where is that initial contact going to be again we ideally would want it slightly in front of the body to underneath especially with a sprinter more of that kind of underneath pattern to continue to move forward I think, you know, to dumb it down a lot, uh, it's always, I tell people, you want your energy going forward, not up. Uh, the more energy you spend going up, the more tired you're going to be, you know, you're making the race a lot longer than it has to be. The other thing I think is, especially if you're watching like professional women running and they have their hair in ponytails, how very little you see their ponytail like flying around, it stays pretty close to the body because the energy is going forward opposed to if you're watching little kids running around on the playground hair is going crazy because they're, they're, you know, they're springing up in the air. They're running, you know, you know, I guess naturally, but in a joyful, natural way where, you know, a lot of energy is going up. So I always, you know, for women, at least you can do the ponytail test. Maybe not the most scientific. I like that though. (laughs) Uh, Katie, to wrap things up, anything else people should know about form, when to correct it, what, how to evaluate themselves? I think number one is, again, asking yourself that why. Why do you think you need to change your form? Do you need to change your form? Are you changing your form because you read a book or someone told you that's what they're doing? Or is it truly because you need to? And then making sure that when you're working on these changes, making sure they're appropriate for your gait pattern and what your goals are, as you heard us talk about a lot of your running form will change based on your terrain and your speed and the distances that you're running. So having a better idea of that will also change and maybe what part of your gait you're working on or how you're working on changing your gait pattern. And when in doubt, ask a professional. There's plenty of really talented coaches to physical therapists um, who can provide different looks at your gait to tell you what is truly necessary. We all want something perfect, but it's finding your perfect and what fits your body the best. There, again, is no right or wrong answer. It's what works for you um, versus going with, hey, Joe Schmo over there is really fast and he's a four-foot striker, so I need to start running on my forefoot. Um, you're beautiful and special the way you are, and we just need to make you your best. And then finally it's you know making sure you have the good shoes and you have all the tools and the desire to if you end up having any change in terms of your enjoyment with running because you're overthinking things it's okay to take that step back and just run for fun too because we're all here ideally for the love of the sport and you want to make sure that is something you're focused on as well Well, Katie, thank you so much. Loved ending it on that note. Uh, If anyone has any more questions about form or questions for Katie as a coach or a physical therapist, please go ahead and send them in and we will make sure she gets them. Talk to you all soon. Hey guys, Coach Andrew Simmons here. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Defining Endurance, the podcast from Lifelong Endurance. Do you want more information and content between shows? Follow us on Instagram at lifelong underscore endurance, as well as on Facebook. You can also check out our YouTube page for more running and strength training tips. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. We look forward to seeing you guys next week.